On July 8, 1992, it was announced that watchmaking giant SMH was purchasing high-end watch brand Blancpain and their movement producer, Frederic Piguet. This was a recognition of the efforts of the contrarian company, which once declared that they would never produce a quartz watch. And it was also a signal that the path to the future of watchmaking lay in high-end complicated mechanical watches, not quartz chronometry. These are the watch files where we tell the stories of the events that changed the horology industry. I'm your host, Serge Maillard, publisher of Europa Star. And I'm your co-host, Stephen Foskett, publisher of Grail Watch and a contributor to WatchWiki and Europa Star. Each episode of The Watch Files focuses on a different story, helping our audience better understand the people and the companies that they hear about every day. So today, Stephen, we're going to talk about Blancpain. And when we say Blancpain, it's actually a very old uh, word that we're going to investigate because it's billed as the world's uh, oldest watch company. Uh, but uh, the history, actually, of the company is far more complex. It was founded before 1735 in Villeray. Uh, and we will go all the way to 1981 when Jean-Claude Biver purchased the name, which was actually a name, really, because the, the company itself was defunct. And uh, when he associated with the movement specialist, uh, Frédéric Piguet, uh, to to relaunch it with a new well a new or an old strategy uh, as you prefer but that would prove successful so much so that the, what would become the Swatch Group would uh, um, actually buy it in 1992 and as we know Blancpain today is uh, part of the of the Swatch Group so we will go through the archives using the Europa Star archives of course. Uh, whenever we can, not as far as 1735, but still a long time ago. So, so the Blancpain actually family um, uh, comes from Villeray. Villeray is, also, is a famous name actually in the in the watch world. You you also know it as uh, uh, the the home of uh, Minerva and of several other uh, uh, big companies of the past or of the present. Uh, so Villeray is in the canton of Bern in the Swiss Jura, and uh, we have some some records, but not much about Jean Jacques Blancpain, who was actually a farmer, <laughs> formerly a farmer. So you you here you have all the all the the story about the the watchmaker farmers of Switzerland, but uh, it's in 1735 when he was uh, 42 years old that he formally, uh, formally recorded his profession as watchmaker. And that's the date that has been actually retained uh, until today by Blancpain as the world's uh, oldest watch company. We will come back later to that claim to see uh, also how, how credible it is. We can even assume that he was actually making watches even before uh, this date because uh, that's the year he recorded his profession. But... Uh, um, actually, in this uh, small town, which was also the birthplace of Pierre Jacques Hedro, of course, another famous name of the, the watch industry, you already had a, not a tradition, it was, a, <laughs> but uh, some elements of uh, watchmaking. So it could very well have uh, started uh, before, before that. So the name Blancpain comes from Jean Jacques Blancpain. Actually, we will go through seven generations of uh, different uh, Blancpain. This is one of the things that I really enjoyed learning about when I was doing a little research for this episode. By the way, I do have to call out to the wonderful newsletter of the Modern Blancpain Company, uh, where they did a great story on the history of the, the brand and the history of the Blancpain family. As you mentioned, uh, you know, we, there are seven generations his uh, grandson, uh, David-Louis Blancpain, traveled throughout Europe and sold watches that brought a great reputation to the firm and to the products that they were creating. But of course, at the time, it was not proper for a company to sign a family name to their watches. So it's quite likely that these watches are anonymous. Uh, they don't have the Blancpain name, certainly. They might not have the name of a jeweler or any name on them at all. They might just be really fine pocket watches from Switzerland. 
But we do know that they were involved in the Napoleonic Wars in France. We don't often talk about things like that when we think about the watch industry, but uh, you know, it's important to think about all the things that were going on in the 19th century and, and the, in Switzerland and France and, and Germany and Russia. And all of these uh, political considerations entered into the picture. Once his son came back from military service, uh, he reestablished the company. Another thing that was interesting to me to learn about was uh, basically the havoc that was caused by the American watch industry in the, at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century. Essentially, as we talked about last week on this uh, podcast, uh, the mass production of watches in the United States caused real problems for the Swiss who were no longer able to command top dollar, who no longer got the attention because the American watches were frankly better. They were mass produced, they used interchangeable components, and they were much, much less expensive. And so Blancpain responded to that crisis by moving up market and by introducing more complicated pieces, more jewelry pieces, more precious metal, more pieces designed for women. And this is a story that will be repeated a hundred years later. But I don't want to get too far out ahead. Yes, actually, so many know of uh, the British engineer, uh, John Harwood, which is uh, credited, widely credited, of course, there are always uh, uh, controversies and talks, and that's the, what makes history uh, interesting, but uh, with inventing automatic uh, winning, winning watches. And again, it's, uh, it's a matter of war again, um, because Harwood uh, noted during the First World War that many watches failed due to water or debris infiltrating the case at the winding stern. So, so from war, as, as often comes also innovation. And the funny thing is that he was also inspired by seeing children uh, play on a seesaw to create an internal uh, winding mechanism. So Howard worked with Blancpain to develop a working prototype of this uh, uh, self-winding watch uh, with an oscillating hammer at one end. And it was based on his uh, 1923 uh, patent. He also um, contracted with uh, another big name in movement, which was Shield SR. And uh, also uh, Fortis, another big name from the past, which was well known as the as the producer of many of the hardwood uh, um, mechanisms. But um, and and what we see also is that uh, Blancpain licensed actually hardwood's designs and uh, many feature the Villeret brands on the dial. Interestingly, if you if you if you find uh, older hardwood watches, they lack a crown entirely. They use the bezel. Uh, and that's the that's that's also an interesting feature of uh, this uh, watch. So that was that was really the the automatic watch uh, coming uh, more mainstream. And uh, in the 30s, uh, Frédéric Émile Blancpain, which was also a heir of the of the Blancpain family, he produced a very interesting uh, um, model uh, called the Rolls, designed for women. And you can actually find a deconstruction of this model on the Naked Watchmaker uh, website. So there was a lot of innovation. I mean, if we if you want to sum up this uh, this era, it means that Blancpain was had, as Stephen said, they had decided to go up market, and they innovated also. Uh, that was uh, that was something that uh, that we should be relevant uh, for the, for the brands. They were deemed as innovators. They had actually lasted through seven generations. That goes through 1932, so the interwar uh, period, when Frédéric Émile Blancpain, so the, seventh, the representative of the seventh generation, he died at the age of 69. He had no uh, male hairs. I, I don't know, Stephen, if he had female hairs, but it's true that uh, back in the this era, that was mostly from male to male, and uh, maybe today would be a bit different. But what happened is that the factory manager, so Betty Fischer, and the sales director, André Leal, who purchased the firm. So for the first time, uh, Blancpain was uh, no longer... Uh, managed by uh, Blancpain, actually, by a Blancpain member of the, fami uh, of the family. And um, as you remember, at the beginning, they 
they didn't necessarily put the name of the of the brands on the uh, on the on the dial because the the concept of brand also was not that important. Uh, that was a bit the opposite because they couldn't uh, the new owners couldn't use the name uh, Blancpain uh, because there's a there's a Swiss law uh, that uh, did not allow a company to be owned outside the family using. Uh, the name of that uh, of that family, so that was a bit restrictive. And what they did is that, as you remember, they they the the the, the brand was in in Villeray, so they took the the two syllables of their hometown, Villeray, they reversed them, and what it gave was Réville. So Réville Essa uh, was born as the successor of uh, of Blancpain, as a, a bit of pun with this uh, uh, playing with the with the name. But uh, for for over forty more years, they would produce the the watches uh, bearing the the Blancpain uh, name actually. So, but that's why you see Réville Blancpain. If you look at uh, older advertisement for for the brand uh, for almost half a century, uh, you will see uh, Réville um, uh, Blancpain. I think it's interesting. You note the the sexism of the fact that that it had to be a male heir and they had to have the name. But the uh, new manager of Blancpain was a woman. Uh, Betty Fichter was a, uh, a woman, and she was a remarkable manager from all accounts. And she took this company way beyond what any Blancpain ever did. In fact, uh, within a couple of decades, uh, Blancpain was one of the major producers of uh, watch movements, especially uh, compact movements that were de destined for women's watches, uh, thin movements. In fact, many of the American companies had trouble producing compact watch movements. So guess what they did? They imported them from Switzerland. They imported them from Blancpain. So if you buy a Gruen or an Elgin or a Hamilton, uh, you might look inside and find a movement that says Réville on it, and that's why. So Blancpain did some pretty remarkable stuff in the 1950s. Uh, one of their most remarkable products, and I know this is going to sound a little bit controversial because, of course, there is a famous watch coming up here in the history of the company, but I think the most important development of the original uh, Blancpain Reveal company was a, a, a small movement called the Ladybird. It was not the thinnest movement ever, and not even the smallest. Uh, the Jeje La Culture 101 deserves that title, but the Ladybird was remarkably small. It was just under 12 millimeters in diameter. It was fairly thick, but still incredibly small in terms of volume. And Blancpain used this movement in many, many remarkable women's watches, jewelry watches. And if you look at their advertisements from the 1950s, this is what the company was known for. The brand Blancpain was synonymous with jewelry watches and ladies' watches. They also had developed an ultra-thin movement. Uh, they called it the Golden Profile. This was uh, the late 1950s was a, an era of uh, competition, uh, another thin watch war that perhaps we'll talk about in the future. And uh, they developed a, an entry into that market. Another thing that was going on right then was, of course, automatic winding. And since Blancpain was one of the companies that produced the world's first automatic uh, watch, as you mentioned, it should come as no surprise that they were involved in developing more automatic movements. Uh, for me, one of the most interesting ones is the Cyclotron, which of course has a great 1950s sci-fi name. It was a 53-joule time-only movement. So if you can imagine, they somehow managed to find a use for 53 joules. That's a lot, even for that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they used this as advertisement to show how wonderful their automatic movements were. Now, another thing Blancpain did in the 1950s that we should uh, definitely mention is developing a remarkable watch called the 50 Fathoms. Uh, there's a lot of coverage of the history of the 50 Fathoms. Again, there was a great, great article in the official Blancpain newsletter about it. Uh, there's also been a lot of coverage in other magazines. But I found it remarkable that there was no coverage of the 50 Fathoms in the 50s, at least in the Europa Star. In fact, it doesn't appear in Europa Star until 1971. This watch was introduced in 1953. It's widely considered to be the progenitor of all dive watches today, probably the most important watch of the company's history. But at the time, it was totally, totally overlooked. 
And I found that really amazing. Blancpain created these, these amazing dive watches. They managed to get you know, the US military contract for dive watches. They invented the unidirectional bezel and patented it so that Rolex couldn't use it. And neither could Omega or Breitling or any of the other competitors in the dive watch space. And yet this watch was not part of their advertisements. But that's okay. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of how things were. I mean, in the 1950s, dive watches and tool watches generally, well, they were considered tools. And they were not widely advertised. You know, Rolex didn't spend a lot of time showing off the new model of the Submariner. They showed them to the people that would buy them, which were the people that were using them as tools. Nobody, I think, expected that uh, 50 Fathoms would become a collectible in, uh, you know, 50 years later. Yeah, and actually there is an interesting uh, 59 Rampin advertisement uh, that joins a bit what, what you say that... Uh, they, they mentioned, they say today Blancpain present their exclusive line. First, they mentioned the Ladybird, the world's smallest round watch, then the Golden Profile, the world's thinnest watch, then the Cyclotron, I, I love this name, the world's only automatic with uh, 53 functional jewels, as you mentioned, and then the 50 Fathoms, the diverse watch officially selected by navies of many nations. So there was there was a bit this sense. Okay, it's 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 uh, it's, uh, it's chosen by the by the navy. It's, uh, it's it's functional. It's efficient. But it's true. What 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 you just say is that the, the commercial uh, success of di diver watches would come a bit uh, later. But it goes to show again that uh, in the fifties, uh, Blancpain was really active in uh, innovating in in many different directions in automatic in the thin watch, uh, ladies watch, they, they had a good profile. But how, what happened is that in, the, in, in uh, 61, Réville joined the, the Société Suisse pour l'Industrie Horlogère, so SSIH, which also contained uh, Omega, Tissot, and Le Mania. So they, for a moment, they kept doing what they, what they did well, and they did it even better because uh, uh, production peaked at over 220,000 uh, watches in 1971, so one decade exactly after they were, uh, they were bought. But it was a time of change, and uh, when the SSIH uh, consolidated from a holding company into a single firm in 1968, Blancpain kind of just became another brand. The, the, the movement factory uh, of Réville was actually more prized uh, as a provider for the different uh, assets of the of the SSIH. So in the early 70s, it was still a rival uh, in terms of high-end watches for uh, uh, Audemars Piguet or, or Piaget or even uh, jewelers uh, like Boucherer, Gublin. Maybe uh, this competition even drove the Chaumet brothers to re-establish the historic Breguet br uh, brand in this period. But it quickly fell out of fashion, unfortunately, in the, in the 70s. And uh, the Saint-Imier firm uh, Maurice uh, was purchased in 1974 and paired with Blancpain as a producer of more historic and skeletonized pocket watches. So really more a niche market from what was really more mass market and amid the drive to, to, to develop quartz movements because we enter now in the 70s in the quartz era. These brands' uh, names were, were set aside. So what we have in the record is that the, the final appearance of Blancpain at the Basel Fair was in 1975 and it was listed as Réville Blancpain, Villeray. And they had a, a small booth uh, opposite their, their sister brand, which was actually a big sister brand, which was Omega. And uh, they also shared space with, the, with Le Mania. So Rayville had become a mostly a movement maker and um, the Blancpain watches disappeared the, the, the following year. Uh, Maurice, for his part, moved under Tissot in 1980. And uh, Réville also ceased to be a, a separate entity. The last appearance of Réville as a, so as a movement uh, manufacturer with Lemania uh, was at the 1980 uh, Basel Fair. And um, Blancpain was defunct. And what's, what happened uh, really, unfortunately, for, for too many companies during this era is that all the archives, the designs, the tooling 
the, they were all destroyed because as as we as we uh, also saw in our last episode with uh, the story of Charles Vermo and Zenith and the El Primero and how we saved the El Primero archives, uh, the belief uh, even among Swiss some Swiss uh, watchmakers was that it was uh, the 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 new era would be only quartz. Uh, mechanical was uh, was basically dead. So now we enter the more contemporary era of uh, of Blancpain. In 1980, there is no longer Blancpain. Uh, there is uh, the uh, Swiss uh, watch industry dominated uh, by this new uh, willingness to enter the, the quartz watch and to defend what can be defended in the mechanical watch as long as can be. So in the 1980s, the Swiss watch industry was dramatically contracting. Sales had dropped really precipitously. Companies were being closed down. And a... uh, (laughs) Hatchet Man was being brought in to basically make sure that the uh, the debts owed to the Swiss banks would be able to be repaid, and uh, that meant that the end was near for brands like Bonpin and producers like Lemania, and not everyone liked the direction that the industry was headed. So, just as an aside, over at Omega. Uh, which again was a sister brand for Blancpain at the time underneath an organization called SSIH, which is a predecessor of today's Swatch Group. There was a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Jean-Claude Biver who was responsible for high-end uh, watches, specifically watches with precious metal cases. And even as Omega's fortunes were failing against the Japanese competition in quartz, and even as Omega was turning to developing quartz movements and Ebauchesse was trying to develop uh, quartz movements and everybody was focused on quartz, Biver saw that precious metal watches and high-end watches, they were still selling. If you look around at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, there were brands like Audemars Piguet who were still selling watches, uh, high-end precious metal watches, jewelry watches, And even Omega was still selling these, but uh, the industry had decided that there was no future in this. And so, as we said, Blancpain was completely shut down. Things were, you know, the records were destroyed, the tooling was destroyed, the factory was actually turned over to Omega, uh, so Reveal was no longer a a going concern. And Nicholas Hayek was part of the, the process of renewing the Swiss watch industry. He was rightly probably cutting down on the number of firms and consolidating and uh, closing factories. And not everybody agreed with this. So over at Omega, the director, Fritz Amann, uh, resigned and most of his staff left as well, including uh, Beaver. And at the time, Beaver had... Uh, befriended another gentleman in the area that he knew who his family was actually a remarkable producer of complicated high-end watch movements. And this company, this this gentleman was Jacques Piguet and his company's family firm was Frederick Piguet. And they had for a long time been uh, focused on producing some of the most remarkable high-end ultra-thin watch movements. In fact, they were a great competitor for Reveal. And um, Beaver and Piguet looked at it and said, we should continue production of high-end mechanical watches. At the time, Piguet was actually thinking of closing down uh, his production of mechanical watches because they they didn't sell watches. They supplied movements to companies that sold watches. And so some of his high-end customers, including Cartier, on and Abel were looking for quartz movements. And so uh, Piguet had recently hired a gentleman by the name of Edmund Capt, who designed the uh, Valjou 7750 chronograph, automatic chronograph, uh, to come in and design some high-end quartz movements. And Piguet was basically ready to close down his production of high-end mechanical movements uh, for the most part, or at least consolidate it. But uh, Beaver and Piguet had this idea. And so their idea was that they would buy the Blancpain brand, the defunct brand from uh, SSIH, and that they would restart it. 
And so they did. In uh, 1981, the two of them got together the very small sum of just 21,500 Swiss francs. Now, this number is reported all over the place at different numbers, but this comes from uh, Biver's own, own mouth directly to, uh, I believe, your father in an interview, Serge. And so I'm going to use this as my number. So 21,500 was the price. And they decided to set up in a historic farmhouse in uh, Le Brasses. Uh, that had owned, been owned by the Piguet family, and to make watches. And so they went to Edmund Cap and they said, go through the archives and find us a historic uh, mechanical movement that cannot be duplicated with sports technology. We want something that is different and remarkable. And um, they came up with this idea of a moon phase calendar watch. And this is, to this day, the symbol of Blancpain. It is a, a watch with the month and the day in the windows at 11 and 1, with the moon phase showing at 6 o'clock, with a pointer to the date, with hour and minute hands. This was a watch that did not exist in the court space, and it looked at once old and new. And that is really what they were going for. Biver said at the time that he wanted Blancpain to represent a living museum of the past. In other words, he wanted to show the next generation that mechanical watchmaking from the past was still alive, was still attractive, and was something that you couldn't get from quartz, that this was a unique and novel product, a statement piece. And he went further and directed Cap and Piguet to develop six key mechanical watches over the next decade. And he wanted each one of these to exemplify something that Quartz couldn't have. And those six things were an ultra-thin watch, which actually Quartz did have, but we'll skip that, uh, the moon phase display, uh, a perpetual calendar, a split seconds chronograph, a tourbillon, and a minute repeater. And on those last two, let me just point out that there were no tourbillon or minute repeater wristwatches at the time. They had been sometimes uh, constructed as one-offs by remarkable watchmakers, but these were things that didn't exist. And so the idea would be that they would show the excellence of mechanical watchmaking as a way to sell watches in a new way, even as the entire industry was going against it. So remember, between 1980 and 1985, basically the sale of mechanical watches dropped to almost nothing. And the sale of quartz watches just went through the roof. And that was it. Basically, everybody was, was done with mechanical. And that's exactly the same time that uh, Biver and uh, Piguet decided that they would do something different. What we still have from this era, uh, actually a few years ago, we were lucky enough indeed to have an interview with uh, Jean-Claude Beaver and have him also uh, tell us in his own words uh, what uh, happened during this uh, era and the famous also slogan of Blancpain since uh, 1735, there has never been a quartz Blancpain and there never will be. Um, so there was this, um, what was really surprising actually is how fast at the same time as Quartz was dominating, there was a group of people who reformed a kind of league behind uh, the mechanical watch. So, so that's, that's something we discussed during that uh, interview as well, is uh, how fast you see these uh, uh, people coming together. Uh, Frank Muller, for instance, uh, Gunther Blumlein, of course, who ended up uh, IWC and Diego Lecoultre. Um, also, let's not forget that Rolex kept producing uh, uh, mechanical watches, obviously, and there was the Oyster Quartz, which is uh, uh, still today a high, highly sought uh, uh, item, but they never stopped producing mechanical watches. So there was, there was some resistance on, on, on the side, and even uh, Beaver himself was lobbying against the Quartz watches, and he, he told us an anecdote that... Uh, during a, a, a summit for Credit Suisse, a meeting at Credit Suisse, he said that uh, quartz was actually dangerous uh, for the health and that uh, even the doctors would advise you to take off your quartz watch of, their, of your wrist and, and, and they would even offer you a mechanical watch in exchange. So he had all kind of anecdotes to, 
to uh, to lobby against uh, against Quatch. Um, anyway, when he when he uh, had this uh, this uh, new set of uh, watches coming to to the Basel Fair, uh, that was really a, a blast because uh, that was something people were not uh, expecting. And and I like Stephen that uh, also in our episodes we always also give our uh, credit to people uh, in the maybe more in the shadow. Of course, everyone knows Jean Claude Beaver, but what about Edmond Capt? Uh, who was really instrumental as the engineering head uh, behind the recreation of uh, the, the the six uh, watches, uh, six lines that you mentioned up to the tourbillon, which was actually uh, using the power of uh, the Frédéric Piquet uh, manufacturer. If we if we may say, uh, I, I would say that the the eighties uh, were a time of uh, uh, reinventing uh, the the purpose the purpose of uh, of the mechanical watch and it's very much embodied in the in the slogan of uh, of Blancpain which was uh, provocative and he also I, everyone can weigh in how much how, how accurate uh, it is but he also told us during the interview that was also the um, the time where a new generation of uh, leaders uh, came to into economic power uh, the the so-called hippies <laughs> who had been the post nineteen sixty eight uh, generation, and uh, they, they had this this different set of values that uh, uh, the future can also be built on sustainability and uh, and a, a new sense of uh, tradition. Anyway, that's that's something that uh, led to this uh, whole uh, concept as well. So there was this new generation. No one had ever produced a tourbillon wristwatch until Audemar Piguet accomplished that in, uh, I believe it was 1986. There had been occasional one-off tourbillon, but Audemar Piguet created the first production tourbillon wristwatch. That was one of Viver's directions for Piguet and for Cap, and they did it. I think it's important to recognize this accomplishment. Um, they created, uh, I know it wasn't the first, it was the second, but the second tourbillon wristwatch movement uh, in, in mass production. It was based on a design by the great Vincent Calabrese. So he, uh, Calabrese had uh, designed the Golden Bridge. Uh, so there's another fun little historical anecdote based on a, a, a sketch in a watchmaker's handbook that every watchmaker learns. Basically the school book definition of of how a watch works is a very a linear flow of power. And that's the design of the Golden Bridge. And so he took a look at the tourbillon concept from Audemars Piguet, which stacked all the components one on top of the other and said, well, why don't we just do it linearly like the Golden Bridge? And so he created this, this design for a tourbillon. And apparently that was the design that was adopted by Cap and Piguet and Blancpain and they, it appears, supplied these movements to a none other than Gérald Genta. I couldn't find a, a contemporary source of information for when this watch came out. I would love if maybe one of our listeners would, would let us know. But sometime between 1989 and 1991, uh, Blancpain released the first tourbillon, the first mass-produced tourbillon that had an eight-day power reserve, had a power reserve indicator, a date complication, open heart. Uh, this was quite a remarkable watch. Of course, they had also by that time produced the other of the six that was had never really been produced, which was the Minute Repeater. Mm -hmm. uh, this actually came earlier, in uh, as early as 1986, they had produced a Minute Repeater wristwatch. And so uh, Frederick Piguet was able to deliver every one of uh, Biver's uh, requests. They were able to deliver all six of those great masterpieces of watchmaking. And not only that, but in doing that, they demonstrated that this was a path forward, that this was something that could work. Frederick Piguet and Cap were designing many, many movements for many, many people, but it seems that they probably were at a loss uh, financially. And so Piguet put the company up for sale in uh, 1991. Uh, Beaver was going to buy it. He had tried to put together the funds to buy it, but before he could, he was having a, you know, I guess he was in the midst of some personal issues and um, uh, a divorce, he said in, in that wonderful interview that you, that you pointed to there in the Europa Star. And so they couldn't get the money together and uh, Nicholas Hayek bought it for SMH. 
seeing, rightly so, that Blancpain and Piguet and complicated mechanical movements were a path forward for the entire industry. So not just the Swatch, not just Omega, but Blancpain would help SMH come to dominate the watch industry and become what is now known as the Swatch Group. I also want to point out something else that was going on at this time. So there was a competitor for Piguet uh, that we mentioned earlier, uh, Limania. So Limania was another high-end movement component and had also been part of uh, SSIH and was actually partnered with Rayville in the 1970s. And also, just like Blancpain, was shut down and sold in 1981. Uh, Lemagne was actually purchased by an investor um, back then. It was, it was built up, and it actually ended up being paired with Breguet, who had been restarted, we mentioned, by the Chaumet brothers, as a competitor to, guess what, Blancpain. And so we essentially have two partner companies here. We have Lemagne and Breguet developing high-end complicated watches, and we have Blancpain and Piguet developing high-end complicated watches at the same time, and both of them were doing quite well indeed. I imagine that Hayek wanted Breguet <laughs> because it was the name in watchmaking, but instead uh, Breguet was uh, actually purchased by an investment group that probably you know, didn't want to sell it to him, so he took Blancpain and Piguet. And um, Biver decided that, uh, you know, rather than being left without a movement producer, he would have to sell uh, along with Piguet. And for $60 million, uh, or I'm sorry, 60 million Swiss francs, uh, July 8th, 1992, uh, the SMH purchased the pair of them. And this would be the high-end watchmaking enterprise of, of the SMH, the modern Swatch Group. Jean-Claude Biver is also a man with, uh, you know, when he, 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 he leads new things, he wants to also start new things. So what happened is that in 1992, they resold it for 60 million Swiss francs. 60 million, which is impressive compared to the 20,000 uh, that they, 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 they bought it 10 years before. But it was comprising uh, Frédéric Piguet and Blancpain. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that uh, in the package, you had Frédéric, Blanc Frédéric Piguet and Blancpain. So Frédéric Piguet was also, um, had, had a lot of value as a, uh, of course, a manufacturer, as a mechanical and quartz, by the way, and quartz uh, uh, movements uh, producer. So, so in a way, uh, SSIH uh, sold the company and then the successor of SSIH rebought the company. That's, the, that's how business uh, stories go sometimes. Um, not everyone was happy with this decision. Uh, in fact, two very important names in our story decided to leave immediately. That was Bivet and Kept. Both of them quit, basically, because of this acquisition. So even though the SMH and Hayek got Blancpain and Frederick Piguet, they didn't get Beaver or Capt. Capt actually went to work uh, to, to head up uh, La Magna, basically across town, and uh, develop competing movements to compete with what he had been doing at, uh, at Piguet. Uh, Beaver decided to take some time off, but he couldn't tolerate it. In three weeks, he was so frustrated by being sidelined, I guess, uh, that's what he said in the interview at least, that he called up Hayek and asked for his job back. And Hayek rightly said, well, you know, you did this for Blancpain. You know, you're very familiar with Omega, having run high-end sales for Omega a decade earlier. So he brought Beaver back and he gave him not only Blancpain, but also Omega. And not only that, but within a couple of years, uh, when it was clear that the SMH was doing pretty good with Blancpain and with uh, Frederick Piguet, uh, they lured Cap to come back as well. So he returned to the company and he headed up movement development. And they continued doing really remarkable work. Tourbillon, Minute Repeater, Rotterpont uh, chronographs, uh, a wonderful, wonderful integrated chronograph movement that was used by many, many high-end watchmakers. 
everything that you think of uh, ETA doing for volume mechanical watches, Piguet was doing for high-end watches. And that all happened in the 90s under SMH. As you, as you mentioned, uh, in, the, in the 90s, the Swatch Group was uh, consolidating. Uh, they missed the, the buying uh, Breguet. Um, but uh, as, as much as we, we mentioned in other episodes that the end of the 90s would become an uh, era where Richemont would, would, uh, would, would buy and then a bit, of course, a bit later on LVMH would arrive. But it was a general era of consolidation. Once, once you see that there is an, a, a future for luxury watches, uh, you have actually also luxury uh, groups and uh, uh, making sure that there is a viable way for uh, luxury brands in, in timepieces. Uh, the, the top of the pyramid for the Swatch Group uh, would become Breguet after they managed to acquire it with uh, Nouvelle Le Mania, uh, as, as we saw, which is a bit uh, uh, ironic because, of course, Le Mania was also associated with Blancpain. But they had uh, now uh, Blancpain, they had Piquet, they had Breguet, they had Le Mania. Uh, they had uh, uh, they would have uh, Jacques Edro as well, um, and uh, the 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 funny thing is that today uh, both uh, Blancpain and uh, Breguet are under the supervision of uh, Marc Hayek actually. So it, it, they, they they still keep although they were rivals for so long they they this they, they today they are in a in a similar let's say a parallel still uh, in a parallel. Uh, um, a way, a curse, a concourse of history, in a way. Um, and Frédéric Piguet was renamed, actually, Manufacture Blancpain in 2000, uh, 2010. And actually, you see all these names again in history, how important they are, from Blancpain to Réville to, um, to uh, Frédéric Piguet, uh, then back to Blancpain, with uh, Nouvelle Mania, which became Manufacture Breguet, and Edmond Cap, which you mentioned, became actually the leader <laughs> of both manufacturers. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting in a way how this rival company at the end would end in the, in the same roof with a bit of a, uh, this, this tactic of uh, elevating the mechanic uh, to do high-end uh, watchmaking finally uh, embracing um, embraced by by everyone i i don't know where if you if you want to to add something on the the following steps of jean-claude beaver but uh what, what is for sure is that the the, the history of blancpain started before him but he was the one who revived it and in doing so also a lot of the uh, strategy for the mechanical revival of uh, of Swiss watchmaking, uh, but it was also a collective effort, as we mentioned, with uh, uh, Jacques Piguet, with uh, Edmond Capt, uh, eventually with the uh, SMH as well. And this is a recipe that would be applied uh, by Biver for for Omega, which was successful. Uh, we see the nineties. We 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 cannot forget uh, Cindy Crawford. With, uh, for Omega, uh, for instance, and that was really the era where uh, you had this glamour of uh, of watchmaking that was that was uh, back, and it uh, it's uh, as alive today as it's uh, ever been. It was an era of uh, research. You mentioned the tourbillon. Uh, that was the 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 tourbillon would eventually become the symbol. Maybe the there is no greater symbol than the the tourbillon for this. Uh, uh, rebirth of mechanical watchmaking, and this is a recipe also of uh, that uh, Jean-Claude Biver would would bring to to further brands, and uh, that that could be an, a whole other episode. So we're gonna, I guess, we're gonna stick to to this brand. But as mentioned, he was not alone in the the 1980s. Uh, Günther Blumlein at I, IWC, Jäger Lecoult, uh, Gertrude Rüdiger Lang at Chrono uh, Suisse. And of course, the whole new uh, scene of independent watchmakers at the AHCI, uh, from uh, Frank Muller to Jean uh, François Paul Jaune and uh, Antoine Preciuso and uh, uh, many others. I know that uh, uh, Stephen, you wanted to 
to talk about the the claim, uh, this famous claim. Who is the world's oldest watch company? And I know you have some insights on this. Well, yeah, and and this is, I guess, where we're going to get a little controversial. And I can see some folks in the audience uh, here on Clubhouse who are going to perhaps disagree with some of the things that I'm saying. But I think that if you were to just in a vacuum look at Blancpain today, they would be able to trace their heritage, their direct heritage, certainly to 1981 when Viver and uh, Piguet bought the brand. But even before that, I think that you could make a very strong claim that today's Blancpain is really more related to Piguet than to Blancpain and Rayville and SSIH and all that. It was totally disconnected. And if you look at the developments that uh, Beaver uh, relied on to reestablish the brand in the 1980s, and again, these were truly remarkable and respectable, and, and, and they deserve all credit for being able to put these things together. I mean, Minute Repeater, the Tourbillon, some of the smallest movements ever made, one of the first integrated automatic chronographs created in modern times. They deserve a tremendous amount of credit. But truly, that credit should rest, in my mind, with Frederick Piguet, co the, the company Frederick Piguet, and the remarkable watchmakers in uh, the Valley des Jules, and not necessarily with the history of Blancpain in Villeray, because really that, that, that lineage was interrupted. And if it hadn't been for the fact that SMH, now known as Swatch Group, were the ones that bought Blancpain and Frederick Begay in 1992. If it had been a different group, if they had maybe bought Breguet and Le Magne, today's Blancpain might not be claiming heritage to 1725. They might be claiming heritage to 1858 when the Piguet uh, company was, uh, was founded. But, you know, I'm not the boss of uh, the history of the watch industry. And there's actually the true fact that uh, there's a direct line from Blancpain to Reville to SSIH to SMH to Swatch Group to Blancpain today. They certainly have every right to claim heritage to 1725 and Villeray because truly it is the same company. It is that company and that company did continue. The organization in Villeray, the, the, the watchmaking movement operation there never ceased. It became Omega's. And in fact, Omega has uh, recently modernized uh, their operations in that town. And uh, that could absolutely be seen as a continuation of the farmhouse of the Blancpain family, uh, you know, 300 years earlier. So I think that they definitely do have a claim of, of continuity back to that. But Frankly, as, as a watch fan and as a history uh, fanatic, I personally love the history of the Piguet firm in the Valley des Jeux instead of the uh, Blancpain firm in, in faraway Villeray. Another thing that I would actually point out is the whole question of quartz. You know, they've never made a quartz movement and they never would. This is true. There had never been a quartz watch with the Blancpain name on the dial. And there never will be. And that's actually a wonderful thing. And I think that they deserve credit for that. However, that is actually also pretty much an accident of history. If it hadn't been for the fact that Blancpain had moved upmarket in the 1950s um, as Reville, if it hadn't been for the fact that Blancpain had specialized in the production of compact movements that couldn't be duplicated by courts at the time, if it hadn't been for the fact that Blancpain had effectively ceased to exist in the mid-1970s, uh, just as Quartz was rising, there probably would have been a Blancpain watch with a Quartz movement. If you look at what happened to most of the other brands in the space, they went Quartz in the late 1970s. The only reason Blancpain didn't is because they were dead. They were effectively no longer an active concern, and that's why they never produced a Quartz watch movement. But that being said, that's not what Beaver meant. He didn't mean we never produced a quartz watch as a boast 
he meant it as a statement of purpose. At least that's how I read it. And as a statement of purpose, it is a remarkable one because it shows what was special and what was unique and what was wonderful about the Blancpain brand, but also about what revived the entire industry. It showed what could take us forward as an industry from commodity basic timekeepers on the wrist powered by batteries and quartz and all that to the wonderful world of watches of today. And so from my perspective, I give, I give them a great deal of credit, even though it was an accident that Blancpain never produced a quartz watch. And even though Piguet, which is effectively Blancpain, produced many quartz movements. In fact, that's what they focused on in the late 1970s and through the 1980s. And some of the most remarkable developments by CAP were quartz movements by the same company. So yeah, that's true, but that's not what he meant. Anyway, that's, that's my feeling on the thing. As always in history, a lot of paradox, a lot of bumps, a lot of accidents. And uh, at the end, you can, uh, uh, many, you can have uh, many different interpretations. But uh, what, what we, can, we can take away is that uh, Beaver showed the, the path forward for watchmaking uh, when he established Blancpain as a contrarian to quartz. Complicated uh, mechanical watches offered many things. Actually, quartz couldn't match. But it was the intangible value of craftsmanship that uh, took it away. And uh, actually, this living museum of the past is an interesting uh, thought. Are we in the watch community uh, just uh, fascinated by a living museum of the past? Or are we trying to establish uh, new ways, uh, new, even innovative ways as well with uh, innovation? Because it's a mix. This story really shows how watchmaking has been a mix of heritage and these innovations, even at the uh, when the, the the quartz crisis was full fully on, and uh, this uh, ambivalence of uh, of uh, Frédéric Piguet producing both quartz watches and re-establishing the mechanical watch. As a, as a precious item is uh, is really telling. There is a, a kind of uh, uh, of, uh, of a lesson there that uh, uh, heritage and uh, and innovation can also be be some somewhat combined if there is a authentic uh, meaning behind it, of course. So thank you for joining us at the Watch Files, and if you enjoy this podcast, uh, please uh, subscribe. Share it with your friends or let us know, and we're always keen on any feedbacks. Uh, you can find my writing at grailwatch.com or in the pages of Europa Star. You can also find me on Twitter at grailwatch, uh, on Instagram at grail underscore watch, and uh, here on Clubhouse. And you can find my writing at uh, europastar.com, also with your subscription to access uh, all our archives since the uh, 50s and soon the 30s, because I'm glad to say we will uh, soon uh, make available uh, 60,000 additional pages from the 30s from our archives. It's uh, some big uh, work we are, we are doing now in terms of uh, digitization. But uh, we, we really hope that it will provide for, for more content for, for future episodes as well, Stephen. Well, thank you very much. We will be back next week uh, with another page of The Watch Files. Mm-hmm.